Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, Israel National News slash Radio. Coming to you also on Our Roots Sheva. And welcome to another Thursday morning of political talk. Always, uh, always exciting. I know I keep repeating that, how exciting it is, the world of politics these days. We're getting closer to the Iowa caucuses. We are getting closer to some clarity, possibly, on the presidential election. We're also getting a little more clarity, a little more understanding of the 2016 congressional races. Those, that core, uh, sorry, a third of the U.S. Senate seats, all of the U.S. House seats, all up for grabs in this coming year. So there's always a lot of different races. Everybody focuses. We're all focusing on the big ticket. We're all focusing on Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's uh, it's a big mess out there. Iowa's upon us. New Hampshire's upon us. Soon enough, we'll have a little more clarity as far as how the presidential race is going to go. But there are down-ballot races that we should start looking at. If you're For those that are interested in politics, every week, every day is another is another adventure, as they say. Uh, two shout-outs before we get into our show. Uh, we've got a great show coming up for everyone. Uh, a couple interesting different issues as we cook off 2016, uh, particularly from where I'm sitting. But number one is I had mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Special shout-out to New York City Councilman David Greenfield on Getting signed into law, intro 65. And intro 65, for those of you out there who don't know exactly, and why should this matter, I guess, people around the country, it mandates that the New York City, uh, the, sorry, the city of New York, New York City, has to pay for private security guards for all public school, for all non-public schools, uh, over 300 children. They have to go ahead and foot the bill. It's about $20 million. Originally, this was supposed to be school safety officers, which to me made a lot more sense because the school safety officers can be deployed from one school to another. But uh, because of various political reasons, this morphed into private security guards. And this is just a huge win uh, particularly for those who oppose it, who, uh, for, for you know, for their own reasons, feel that not a single dollar should go towards anything, whether it's even for a secular purpose, towards non-public schools. Uh, we'll leave those issues aside because New York State provides textbooks, special education, transportation, all type of secular items. And security is certainly a secular item. It's nothing to do with instruction. It's really just to keep children safe. Kudos to David Greenfield for working for so long to get this done. And really, the opponents, uh, many of the opponents, have, have said things that are quite incendiary, quite upsetting, particularly if you're a yeshiva parent. You should, you should seek out some of those opponents and, uh, and tell them, uh, you know, speak, speak your mind, because there's no reason to be embarrassed about this bill. There's no reason to be embarrassed about this. Uh, and uh, just uh, with regard to that, I want to get into a, you know, another, just very, very quickly before we go to our first guest uh, issue. And, we're, you know, we're going to touch on this later, later in the show, probably. But the other night, uh, Tuesday night, Frontline, which is a great PBS documentary uh, film, filmed a two-hour special on Netanyahu and I guess the rise of Bibi. I don't know what the, the title was, like Netanyahu at war or something. Uh, filming starting from the uh, assassination, covering kind of Bibi's rise and then the assassination of Rabin, as well as then, you know, Bibi and Obama 
which is particularly interesting. Uh, and we'll get into this with our first guest. But if you haven't seen this documentary, you definitely should. Uh, it's very informational. It's very, but it's also a little bit disturbing for a number of reasons. And you know, hopefully, we're going to talk to our first guest about it. I just wanted to get that out of the way that people should go ahead and see this. It's two hours. You can catch it on PBS.org. Frontline documentary on. Uh, I think it's called BB at War. Uh, I don't have it right in front of me. But I want to get into our first guest. Welcome back to the show, Ron Campias, from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency who uh, covers uh, Israel, covers Washington, is the Washington bureau chief for the JTA, and covers politics as well. But we're going to talk about a very interesting and sensitive topic that's going on right now that caught my interest. Ron, welcome back to Spin Class. Thank you. So, Ron, a bombshell article, I think, from certain quarters uh, in the Wall Street Journal outlying how the U.S. was spying on Israel and caught up in the net of spying were various American Jewish organizations. So you maybe set the table for the audience here as far as what happened, how it happened, and when it happened. Right, not just Jewish organizations, but also uh, congressmen. Uh, what what right. happened is, 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 is that the, um, uh, apparently at the, at the outset of every presidency, the NSA sends over a form to the new, new president, and uh, there are a number of questions, and one of the questions is, we are capable of monitoring the phone calls of leaders, including allied leaders. Do you want to see this information? And uh, supposedly, uh, virtually every president, including President Obama, yeah, checks the box, according to uh, the Wall Street Journal. They do want to see the information because it's, uh, it's helpful to them to, um, for their planning. And so this was exposed to a degree in 2013 by Edward Snowden, who revealed that the, uh, uh, that the, White, that the NSA had been uh, eavesdropping on um, Angela Merkel's, uh, the chancellor of Germany's, her cell phone calls. So uh, it created a, uh, a foreign policy problem for Obama. So he, uh, he said that he would uh, stop the practice with some exceptions. He didn't say what those exceptions were. And it turns out that one of those exceptions was um, Benjamin Netanyahu. Another one was uh, Turkish President um, Erdogan. Erdogan. Yeah, they kept, uh, they kept eavesdropping on, uh, on those folks. And so uh, one of the things that the NSA was doing was the eavesdropping and reporting back to Obama. And according to the Wall Street Journal article, uh, the, the White House didn't issue any directives. They didn't say, we want this kind of information or we don't want that kind of information. They left it up to the security apparatus to forward what information they thought would be uh, useful. And so one of the things that the, um, that the uh, NSA did focus on was, uh, was the Iran issue in two areas. They wanted to uh, see whether Netanyahu was planning a, uh, a strike on Iran, which would have been very disruptive to U.S. interests as they saw it, and they also wanted to see what he was doing to try and uh, and scuttle the um, the Iran deal. Specifically, one of the th- one of their concerns supposedly was whether he would uh, uh, leak anything that the uh, that the uh, Obama administration was hoping to keep secret until the deal was uh, in place. Um, and so, in the course of that, they they. Uh, they listened to conversations that the uh, figures in the uh, in the Israeli government, including presumably Netanyahu, were having with with congressmen and with uh, and with Jewish organizational leaders. And now there's a uh, there's a policy that the NSA is supposed to observe, which is called minimization. In other words, when they, as soon as the whoever the, the the first person getting that report immediately scrubs out the identity of the Americans who are uh, 
listened to, and that's what uh, that's what keeps keeps it legal. As long as the as the as the principal target in the conversation is a foreigner, and as long as the American interlocutor's uh, in, uh, identity is not uh, discernible when the when the report is passed on, that uh, according to rules set in place in the 1970s. Uh, Makes it uh, makes it legal, and according to the Wall Street Journal, the U.S. officials said they observed those rules. But like uh, the but uh, you know people who could read the reports without necessarily knowing specifically who was on the other end of the phone call could tell that uh, in some cases the calls were made to congressmen, presumably because the report would include talk about like how you're going to vote or whatever, and in other cases were made to uh, leaders of uh, Jewish and pro-Israel organizations. Okay, so what do we learn? What do we learn from this? Okay, it should be business as usual, right? It, it, okay, the U.S. has the capability of spying on people. We know from Snowden, we know from WikiLeaks, we know from a lot of these places that the United States has been spying. Why is this? Why is this news? What's the news here that that anybody should be surprised about? Uh, I think the news is how deeply the Obama administration was concerned about uh, Netanyahu's opposition to the Iran deal. I mean, like. Uh, it, the, the you know there's there like I said there were two issues one's kind of black and white yeah of course you want uh, you, you would expect an American administration to want to know whether Israel was going to uh, strike Iran without giving it advance warning because it's happened in the past that the Israelis have carried out strikes without really warning the Americans uh, the most famous one was 1981 when they bombed the nuclear reactor in in, in Iraq but the uh, the other issue to the degree to which the um, to the U S government was interested in Netanyahu's opposition to the deal. I mean, it gets into a it gets into a gray area. They maybe they're legally entitled to uh, to find out uh, whatever they want about what uh, the Israeli government is up to. But uh, when they get when they when you get down into the sort of the weeds of tracking what your opponent is doing politically, everybody kind of gets uh, a little dirty. To what degree is it legitimate for, her, for, for the Israeli government, for Netanyahu, to have inserted itself so deeply into the political process here? To what degree is it legitimate for the Obama administration to use that means to track the political opposition to the, uh, to the deal? It's, a, it's kind of a gray area. Well, that's an excellent segue, and we are talking to Ron Campias here on Spin Class, uh, Washington Bureau Chief of the JTA. So tell us, what do we learn about the Jewish organizations? What do we learn about the lobbying uh, or advocacy process of various Jewish organizations? And I think more, maybe possibly more touchy, is how much they're in, uh, in concert or in coordination with the Israeli government. Well, I think what you know what what this showed is that uh, that the Israeli the Israeli government was uh, was it, it suggests that the Israeli government was deeply involved in the um, in the process of, of organizing opposition. We kind of knew that in any case. I mean, uh, what this recalls is the whole episode over Netanyahu's speech to Congress in March, in which um, you know the the offense there, as far as the American government was concerned, was not so much in the speech itself. But in the fact that it was coordinated in secret with the Republican leadership, uh, uh, and and one of the things that this re- that this report re- kind of reveals, although it's something that we already knew from what people were saying on the record, is that John Boehner, uh, the Republican Speaker, and Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, deliberately or coordinated with uh, the Israelis, particularly Ron Dermer, the Israeli ambassador, to uh, to keep this secret. That, like I said, Boehner and Dermer have already confirmed as such uh, on the record. 
but that shows the uh, the degree to which the the depth to which the Israelis were involved in coordinating this. And what was not a lot of attention has been paid to the fact that the one of the uh, sectors that was caught off guard by the announcement of the speech was, in fact, the pro-Israel community. APAC had no idea that this was coming, that, and and that um, and, and uh, it, in a sense, it's it kind of left um, the Jewish organizational world vulnerable to uh, to spying because uh, so much of the um, so much of the planning was co-opted by the Israeli government. The Obama administration. Legal, at least, would not have been able to spy, let's say, on APAC coordinating with the ADL and the American Jewish Committee, because that would have been spying on Americans. But when, the, uh, when things are being more or less coordinated, either here at the Israeli embassy in Washington or in uh, Jerusalem, that gave the Obama administration a legal avenue into monitoring how the, uh, how the political uh, game against the, uh, the Iran deal was shaping up. Absolutely amazing. Uh, what has been the reaction from Jewish organizational leaders with regard to the spying or regard to having their phones tapped? They're not happy. <laughs> but they're not happy. There's a couple Anybody like, uh, on the record not happy? The of America is, uh, is calling for um, uh, further investigations. And the, or- the Republicans on the Oversight Committee want to know more information. They want to know that the, uh, the rules of uh, what, what I call minimization were huge to. But on the other hand, you, you, you get like... Uh, you know, APAC and the Conference of Presidents have declined to comment. ADL and the American Jewish Committee aren't happy. On the other hand, they know that this uh, goes on. And in fact, I mean, it, we we knew that it it went on for years because there was the whole uh, spy case of the mid 2000s with two former APAC staffers. If you read the indictment against those staffers, and that case failed, by the way, uh, ultimately the government didn't, wasn't able to make the case. But if you read the indictment against the staffers, you saw that the uh, the FBI honed in on those two staffers because they were already monitoring the conversations of Israeli officials and Israeli diplomats at the time and following them and seeing that they were meeting with these, uh, with these two staffers in particular. So it's, it's not new. They, uh, it's not the first time that the U.S. government has sort of swept up uh, pro-Israel officials in their attempt to um, spy on Israelis. Okay, I want to switch gears. We mentioned, and we're almost out of time for this segment. We're talking with Ron Campias from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Uh, the PBS special, Netanyahu at War. All right, so not a, it wasn't a special, a regular frontline thing. Uh, any any bombshell? I mean, I watched it. It seemed overly slanted. I, I lived in Israel at the time uh, during the Rabin assassination. It was an absolutely horrible time to be living there, in addition to all the terrorism. But uh, but I would I actually you know I remember the rallies. Uh, you know, I, I really, I've always had a problem. I, I certainly have, I'm certainly not condoning. I, I think that what was going on and the rhetoric leading up to the assassination of Rabin is, was a absolute travesty, a tragedy. Uh, but this this incredible uh, pointed blame and, and uh, the slant towards blaming Netanyahu as if this was like a, some kind of political uh, hit on the, uh, on the assassination of Rabin, particularly around the Martin Indyk. Uh, you know, s- statement which Netanyahu has denied, saying, "Well, uh, Rabin dying is terrible for me." You know, you have to understand because you know I would I would have beaten him or something like that. Uh, right. Yeah. You know, just just give a quick overview as to you know what where this this front line uh, this front line spe- uh, episode or segment was going and what what can be taken out from this. What are your takeaways from it, uh, if you don't mind? 
Yeah, I think I think what you said before is, is worthwhile to see because it's a comprehensive documentary. It covers a lot of areas, but certainly viewers should go at it critically. And I think like one of the things they tried to do was like they they made it like they were they were too eager to set up two antagonists. You know, Barack Obama on the one hand, Netanyahu on the other hand, and they kind of skated over areas in which you know both men have tried to. Uh, to accommodate the other side, whether it's uh, Netanyahu before Obama in the 90s, working with the Clinton administration, or, or currently with the uh, with the uh, with the Obama administration. So it, um, it it skates over, you know, it, it focuses heavily, for instance, in in recent years on the tensions over the Iran deal. But it skates over the fact that during Obama's first term, there was actually a lot of cooperation between both governments. In, uh, in confronting Iran, they jointly developed the, the Stuxnet virus, which uh, disrupted the whole uranium enrichment process. It, uh, it focuses a lot of, on Netanyahu's resistance, uh, a supposed resistance to the Obama administration's overtures on peacemaking with the Palestinians. It doesn't mention the things that he did to try and accommodate those things. For instance, the 10-month uh, settlement freeze in, in 2010 and then a uh, Releasing the prisoners in 2013 and, and, and 2014. So I'm not sure, you know, if it's a bias against Israel or if it's just a bias towards trying to set up some sort of grand clash between two uh, personalities. But like, uh, you, you're right. You should watch the documentary, but also keep a critical eye. Yeah, I think they, the setup was kind of Netanyahu versus the U.S. because it also had Netanyahu kind of versus Clinton. And it right. was, you know, you had so Netanyahu versus Clinton, Netanyahu versus Rabin, Netanyahu versus Obama. It also skips over Netanyahu's tenure in between as finance minister and, you know, holding, you know, other posts. Uh, mm -hmm. at, didn't really kind of glossed over some of those as well. And, you know, the other thing I, I think that it kind of failed to do was talk about the Israeli political spectrum. You know, if you look at Bibi, I mean, it, you know, complex character, clearly. But he's not exactly the most right-wing person in Israel, in Israeli no. politics. No, he's not. He's, uh, he's uh, you know, he, he reflects a, uh, uh, he, he reflects the, the consensus from the center-right to the right. He's not the most right-wing. He's, uh, he's, he's paid a political price for, uh, uh, for moves that the, the, uh, the, those on the further right would, uh, would oppose. He's, uh, he's been lambast, he, for what I mentioned, freezing the settlements, releasing the prisoners. He's taken hits for that. So it's, it's not as, uh, as black and white as it would be, as it's suggested in that documentary. Okay, Ron Campias from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, Washington Bureau Chief. Thanks for uh, enlightening us on some of these uh, very interesting issues. Uh, the spying is, you know, is, is you, uh, not unexpected, but still shocking when you see it. So I appreciate you coming on the show. We'll have you again in the very near future. Okay, thank you. And this is Spin Class. We're talking politics. I want to welcome our second guest. We're going to profile some of those very interesting congressional races, some of these races coming up in 2016. Obi Murray, Republican political consultant. Welcome back to Spin Class. Hi, Michael. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. And uh, Obi, let's just start with New York for a second. Hopefully we'll have time to talk about some wider things. Um, you know, potentially... New York getting some presidential play, but also we have a number of key retirements coming out of con Congress members who don't want to run again, setting up some interesting races, both upstate and now downstate. Big bombshell retirement yesterday or yesterday, two days ago. Uh, Steve Israel, member of the Democratic leadership, representing a district on the North Shore of uh, Long Island, Queens, Suffolk, Nassau, announces that he is not going to run for another term. Yeah, you know. 
I never, I'd say between you and me, but we're on the radio, obviously. Uh, I, I'm not shocked at him stepping down and doing it. There was rumors he was going to not seek re-election in two years, and this was his last run. Uh, you know, Jack Martins has had a number of meetings down in Washington over the past few months. Uh, a lot of people have been telling him he should run for this seat. Uh, he had a lot of interest in it to begin with. And uh, there, there was, I believe, it, Steve Israel started feeling the pressure at this point and decided that if he didn't step out now, who knows what would happen. So I think he feels that he's got a better chance of holding the seat with an open seat than going against Steve Israel, who's had a pretty abysmal record, frankly. Interesting. Well, you know, Steve Israel being a key Jewish member of the Congress, uh, also was an opponent of the Iran deal, broke with the president on that, as a member of the Democratic leadership. So certainly somebody uh, we need to... But can you handicap well, my, the race Michael, for us? Michael. I mean, there's going to be a he, lot he of people looking at that race. Way. I'm sorry, but go ahead. Did, but what did he really do? He sat on his hands. No, I understand. I'm just... But, I, so, but you know, we, we, we can't let our politicians off by voting a certain way just because they hold their nose and do it. You know, his actions spoke louder than his words. You know, and it's not about Steve Israel going forward. He's not on the ballot anymore. But uh, it would have been great to go up against him if Jack were to decide to run. Okay, so that's Senator Jack Martins from the North Shore. Uh, Jack Martins has uh, has served several terms in the, in the New York State Senate. Uh, won some tough races. He had run for Congress once before, and uh, is very popular. And his district covers a lot of the congressional district, obviously larger. Let's look up state for a second, Obi. Uh, two retirements of key Republicans who had been quite successful, but also quite moderate. Chris Gibson up in the uh, Hudson Valley, as well as Richard Hanna in the Mohawk Valley. Uh, you know, talk about a little bit there in those races, what might happen. Well, well it's very interesting. It's, it's, it's different in each one because Chris Gibson, when he got sworn in a year ago, announced he wasn't going to seek re-election. So that immediately opened up the opportunity for others to get into the race, Democrats and Republicans, for an open seat. Uh, and in that race right now, you've got uh, Andrew Heaney and John Faso duking it out. Andrew Heaney just now has announced, I think the other day, he raised about a million dollars or more at this point. And John Faso had significant money in his first filing. I haven't seen a second numbers at this point. But uh, that's going to be a, a knockdown dragout fight, I, I believe, in that primary. Uh, the Democrats really don't have anybody in that race yet. Uh, Tichau, who, who had run for uh, governor against Cuomo and primaried him and did pretty well upstate, she actually is, uh, Zephyr Tichau, is talking about running in that race possibly. Interesting. They're the leading Democrat, uh, Ulster County Executive Michael Hine, was expected to run and decided not to. Uh, is that a sign that, uh, that the Democrats don't feel that seat is winnable? I think uh, you know, it, it's a tough district for, for either side, but I think what they saw there now with the filings with, with two fantastic Republican candidates in there is that it wouldn't be an easy run for him. And he decided to stay where he was for whatever reason, and uh, it's great for the Republicans, frankly. If the Democrats can't put together uh, candidates for these seats, it's going to make it that much better for us going forward. And I think really what that is is indicative of a lot of what's happened across the country, though. With Steve Israel stepping down and deciding not to, to run again, and other leadership throughout Washington, the Democrats realize they will not hold the majority, or will get the majority at this point. So who wants to run and go down to Washington and be in the minority? That's really what it's coming down to, I think, for a lot of these members that have, have decided to move on over the years. Interesting. So Richard Hanna in uh, Syracuse area, Mohawk Valley, uh, decides to hang it up after uh, a couple terms. Uh, no, thought of as a swing district, very much a swing district. Who has the advantage in that one? 
Well, I, I think the Republicans have it right now because there's been nobody that's come out yet from the uh, Democratic side that I know of that has really said they want to get in there and do that. Uh, that district has been a moderate, cons- moderate Republican uh, over the years, uh, and really the only threat to the Republicans in that seat historically has been a Republican primary. So I think it's a great opportunity. I know it was held there for a couple for for a term by a uh, by the Democrats, but it but, but it's been in Republicans' hands much more than uh, than Democrat. So you're you're expecting, and let's let's talk for a second about some of the freshmen. Uh, some of the two uh, come to mind here in New York who are potentially facing tough races. Uh, Lee Zeldin out in the first district. Uh, it has well, there's Democratic primary, so it's unclear. But that's been a swing district, as well as upstate, all the way upstate. Uh, the seat held by Lee Stefanik uh, up in the North Country has also been a swing district over the last couple of years. Uh, what are either of those two vulnerable? Well, I think Elise is is a lot less vulnerable than anybody else right now as a freshman, and I think that speaks to the quality of a candidate she has been in the past. But also that district, actually, I've worked on that race quite a bit. Uh, Prior to that, for a guy named Doug Hoffman, who was actually a conservative candidate up there at that time. And uh, the reality up there is that it's a Republican seat that the Democrats stole for a couple terms. And and that's what it comes down to, I think, that uh, at least it's the right candidate for that district. It's also a very large district, not easy to get around. Uh, so the campaign up there takes quite a bit, a lot of, lot of uh, time to do that, as well as money. So she's, she's doing fine up there. She's doing great. And I think uh, Lee Zeldin has is, is got a lot tougher district because the Democrats against him right now are primarying, and they both raised quite a bit of money and are going to make that competitive. But that being said, I think Lee's going to do a fantastic job there. I mean, he, he uh, is well-received in the district. He knows it well. He's from out there. Uh, he's raising great money. He's doing a great job in the Jewish community out there as well, as you know. Um, and he, he's also doing gangbusters just with his military service and what's, what's right for the, uh, for the troops as well. So if you take the Israel issues, the troop issues, and the jobs and the economy out there, I think Lee's going to do a great job out there and continue uh, on for another term. So just to segue, we're talking to Obi Murray, Republican political consultant. Uh, one of the fears, and you mentioned Jack Martin's potentially running for the U.S. Congress, is that will imperil the New York State Senate Republicans holding their slim majority uh, in for this coming year. What do you what do you make of of of, the, of those who say that? Well, I, I think people that ask the question are. are asking the right question, but I think the simple answer was that Jack Martins beat a gentleman named Adam Haber last time, who outspent him and was a self-funder and could have written a bigger check if he wanted to, but he beat him by double digits, 13 points. Uh, if that doesn't show you that that district can be Republican, I don't know what will at this point. So, so Jack won that decisively, a Republican can win that district, and the Republicans will hold that district, too, if Jack decides, if Senator Martins decides to, uh, to run for Congress. And what about the uh, Skello seat? Uh, special election has yet to be called. We're not sure if it's going to be in April. We're not sure if it's going to be in November. The Democrats have already nominated uh, Assemblyman Todd Kaminsky. Uh, who are the Repu- who's going to be the Republican candidate? I think it's too early to tell. I think there's a number of candidates out there that have been talking about it, but uh, or even not, not even publicly, some of them. But uh, I think that'll come around, and, and I think you're going to start finding a lot of issues, frankly, with the Democratic nominee who decides... Let's go after Dean Skelos, but he doesn't go after uh, Shelley Silver. You, know, you, you don't get away with that in, in a political world where you, can, where you say in a partisan way that one guy is bad, but my guy is not. 
And that's not the way to try to say that you're all about good government. So I think that's going to be an issue for him going forward. He's realized it's going to be a tougher race than he expected. Um, and also a lot of that's going to be about the turnout. Is that, good, is that uh, election going to take place on the day of the, the uh, presidential primary? And will there be a contested re- Republican primary and an uncontested Democratic primary for president? Because then that will skew the turnout for the Republicans, which will be uh, an advantage then for the Republican nominee. Okay, Obi Murray, Republican political strategist, uh, certainly giving us uh, some inside information uh, on on at least one of the congressional races we're hearing uh, coming up here in New York State. And were any predictions uh, for the New York for the uh, Iowa caucuses on the Republican side? Oh, any, anything happened? I, I just say I talked to some people this morning. You know, this whole question about Ted Cruz and whether or not uh, being born in Canada is an issue or not, I it begs the question about what the expectation game is going to be. You know, this is all about the spin, not the win, which is appropriate for me to say on your show, Michael. <laughs> Very good. I appreciate it. But, Excellent. but you know, what the expectations are, if, Ted, if this causes Ted Cruz to miss expectations, that's as, as bad as a loss sometimes. I hear that. Well, there's the music. That's it for Spin Class. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks on the Nachum Single Network. Thank you, Obi Murray.